This CosmicReality.com presentation is sponsored by MysticalWares.com. Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Shaman Avidician. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three part spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to all of you out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's comical, less than logical, paradoxical, poorly chronicled, unsettled little world. As always, my darlings, we try to do this with as much dignity and decorum as can be mustered on any given day. We are not always successful. We are rarely successful. I'll admit to that. But we are honor bound to give it our best shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show. We do love the art shot now and then. Oh, yes, we do. In fact, I think I'll take a sip of my drinky poo right now. Hold on. Don't go away. Oh, ooh, good choice, Arnie. That's really rather yummy. Mm. All right. Well, I'm fortified now. So, hello, if you're joining us for the first time. I extend a very warm welcome to you. Now, darlings, be advised, this show is not politically correct, as we do not wish to erode our intellect. We are awake. We are not woke. We know the agenda behind the death poke, and we refuse to wear a face cloak because we are Americans. We're not brainwashed, remotely controlled automatons. Martini heads, we come from all walks of life, but we are, by and large, patriots in the truest sense of the word. And I suppose it's fair to say we lean toward a more libertarian ideology, although we have people who are left and people who are right and people who don't know their ass from their elbows. They're all welcome to seek the knowledge. Now, we do know that love of one's country means nothing without understanding its true purpose in the world arena. And one of my little pet peeves is that patriots are not educated in the world arena. So we encourage patriots to educate themselves on such matters. Patriotism, my darlings, true patriotism. It does not mean believing you are better than any other nationality. That's not what it's all about. 
True patriotism means you want to do the best for your tribe so that your tribe can play nicely with other tribes and together all tribes will do the best for the planet and then the planet plays with other planets and then the solar system plays with other solar systems and you know it just goes on there until we are all back in cosmic union on this show we value common sense and common courtesy and common decency we are committed to aligning our minds with divine mind that's what we call right-mindedness no religion you can have one if you want i don't have one no religion no gurus no prophets um no requirement to filter life through one central controlling orthodoxy if i can put it that way martini heads are free thinkers we are cosmic space adventurers who value sovereignty above all and what do we have coming up for you in today's show let me take a look well of course we have quack questions answers and comments and after that we have a little pat of poetry that's where i share my very silly poems and we're following that this week by plato chips which is our philosophy segment and then of course we have a tarot a go go and if we have time we'll throw in some weird and wacky tidbits from the anus of history or we'll talk about my website or my grandmother who knows we'll see how the show goes but for now let's get on with quack questions answers and comments because that is the meat of our show my darlings if you would like to share the contents of your sparkling minds on this intergalactically acclaimed show send your emails to me arnie@arnieavadisian.com or if you prefer snail mail get yourself a little postcard and send it to cosmic arnie PO box 714 Wilsonville, Oregon 97070 USA. And don't forget to let me know if how you wish to be identified. Otherwise, I'm going to have to refer to you as omit personal details and that's somewhat inglorious, I think. So, let's shake up the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity and let's see what pops up. Shaky 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 all right let's see our first missive is from Seneca gosh Seneca i thought i thought you died in 65 AD and yet here you are well how can i a humble little shaman be of service to the great philosopher and statesman let's see what it's all about here Seneca asks I have been victim to paranormal anomalies for many years. Have you really? This is exciting. Okay, let's carry on. It started with strange noises in the kitchen and progressed to items inside of the cupboards being moved. Soon after, items left on the table and countertops were being moved. Sometimes items go missing and cannot be located. I have called in many so-called experts from investigation teams to psychic mediums and no one not one person can tell me what is going on in my home. One person, the psychic medium person, said it was all in my head and that's insulting. 
I am not mentally ill. You would think someone would be able to help, but nothing so far, and I'm not going to waste any more money on it. I guess I'll just get used to it and tune it out. Okay, well, Seneca sent me a photo of his kitchen um, to see if I could pick up on anything. And, you know, sometimes we can pick up on stuff from photos. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes it is all in your head. And that is probably, in my opinion, the most difficult part about dealing with things paranormal. If I can't see what you see, there's usually a reason for that, because my intuitive skill set's pretty good, pretty well intact, and quite experienced at that sort of thing. Um, so, Seneca, I sat with the photo for a while. Um, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying... Um, you could clean up the kitchen a little better. It looks a little bit messy in there. Um, I'm assuming you're not married. Um, anyway, first, let me say that an anomaly is something outside the norm. And therefore, unless we have a frame of reference, investigators can't identify every anomaly. The universe is filled with wonders, and some of them can't yet be explained. So, I sat with this photo, and I did come up with something. I don't think you have anything paranormal in your kitchen, Seneca. I think you have mice. I don't think you need a paranormal team. You need a big mouser cat. And I'm being serious. I'm not being funny. You know, let's look at this. Stuff is moving around inside the cupboards. That's, that's very interesting. And then sometimes stuff on the countertops and on the table is moving around, and occasionally things go missing. Now, the picture you sent me, you have an open loaf of Franz bread on your table. Okay? I think what's happening is little teeny tiny nieces are getting in there, routing around, and where they see this open food, they're going to grab some because it's like a buffet for them, isn't it? So strange noises, items inside the cupboard, items on the counter, some missing, and all this confined to the kitchen. It's not paranormal, Seneca. It's tiny rodents. So this is what I suggest. First of all, put away your food when you're not eating it, because that really helps. And then get down to your local cat shelter and tell them you need a mouser who needs a good home. And I guarantee all your problems will go away. And Seneca, you're not the only one who's been fooled by rodents. This is so much more common um, than you would think. Also, people's dogs and cats move stuff, and people think it's paranormal, but it's not. It's quite common. And um, <clears throat> I'm surprised you haven't found any mouse poo-poo in your home. But then again, tiny mice, tiny poos. Uh, get yourself a cat or get yourself an exterminator. But thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you, oh great Seneca. All right, let's move on. Um, first of all, let's take a little sip of my drinky poo. Well, let me take a little sip of my drinky poo. Mm. All right. Oh, God, that is good. <clears throat> I hope it doesn't make me burp because it's quite fizzy. All right, here's another one from the fishbowl. It says, Dear Shaman Ani, as midterms approach and November elections creep ever closer, 
I would really like your thoughts regarding political candidates, especially grassroots ones, that's difficult, grassroots ones running for office. We all, or at least hopefully everyone, knows that both sides of the aisle are deeply corrupt, and certainly the lifers in the swamp are crooked as well, um, you know, and some of them more crooked than you could ever imagine. On the other hand, energy goes where intention and actions flow, and in order to manifest what we desire, we need to move our feet, correct? So what do you think about choosing to support and help candidates who believe in getting to the office um, with a faint hope that they can affect change in some small way? Don't we have to start somewhere? Okay, I know I didn't read that very well, um, but I think, you know, what you're really saying is you want to support the grassroots candidates. And people are hesitant about that because they don't have any political experience. But we don't want people with political experience, do we? No, we don't. No. And this was sent to me and uh, it also says, thank you very much for your wise counsel. How sweet. Um, and this is perplexed in Poughkeepsie. Um, wow. Okay. Will my perplexed in Poughkeepsie person, here's my take on this all. It's a fair bet that, as you say, all the lifers are swamp creatures and crooked. After all, that's why they had heart attacks when Big Daddy T came along and told the world, hey, all the lifers are corrupt. Let's, you know, drain the swamp. I personally, I would definitely pay attention to grassroots people entering the arena for the first time. If you have someone worth supporting, then go for it. And I hope we can have dozens, if not hundreds, of new citizen representatives in the House. And let's not dismiss the local governments, too, because, you know, Koch brothers and all that lot, they bought the local and state governments before they bought out at the national level. My advice to the new grassroots peeps, should they get elected, and I hope they do, don't try to look or act like a politician. Focus on what it really means to represent the people. And take your example from Daddy T. Uh, the government, or what you want to call it, the China shop, was stocked with millions of well-protected fragile lies, wasn't it? Agendas of personal gain and so forth. And Daddy T stomped in like a bull in the China shop, removed the protection and proceeded to smash it all up into little bits. And we need a great deal more smashing to go on. Now, how many people do we have in the House of Representatives? I think it maxes out at something around 435. So even if we get 20% new blood, that would give the light a tremendous edge. So I would say chat with these people. Make sure they have an understanding of what they're taking on and see if they have the spiritual stamina for it and see if they are actually, you know, filtering through partisan affiliations. I know you have to be in some party or another, usually, um, you know, to be voted for and people tend to dismiss independence. But we really want to quiz these people as much as support them. We want to make sure they can stay the course. So I want to thank you for the question, um, Poughkeepsie person. Thank you for caring, because grassroots, 
baby, that's where it's at. We must, in my opinion, move toward libertarian ideals of small government and supersized sovereignty. One last word on the grassroots peeps. Um, that is so difficult to say. Grassroots people. We must, must, must make it known we are watching them as well as supporting them. So if they succumb to temptation because, you know, Deep State has unlimited pockets, if they take the devil's money and swim in his swamp, they need to know that we will drag them into the town square and in public view, we will set their pants on fire. And I volunteer to do that because I think it will be great fun. All right, let's see what else is in the little fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. I've had um, a note from several of uh, my lovely listeners saying, we love the questions, but can you do less questions? And we miss the cryptic mystic and Plato chips and all the other sections. So I'm going to try to achieve perfect balance here, okay? All right, let's see how we go. This is from William, who lives in Washington, uh, Washington State, not Washington, D.C. And William says... Dear Mad Ani, the, um, I'm not Mad Ani. I'm mad because I'm a shaman, not because I'm Ani. But it doesn't really matter, William. Um, the crime rate is skyrocketing everywhere. What's happening? Is it related to the dark forces trying to take over? Interesting question, William. There are many reasons the crime rate is skyrocketing. Let's start with the puppet administration, a.k.a. the Clinton-Biden crime cartel. For a start, they have crashed the economy. What did it, how long did it take them? 15 months? Something like that. Who makes that much of a mess in that short a time? Well, they did. Um, you know, the attempted New World Order takeover, the mandates. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their business. Many people became quite literally homeless. People need shelter. People need food. And if people have families to support and no money with which to do it, through no fault of their own, because their own government has declared war on them, petty crime might be seen as an option. And these people have never considered or committed a criminal act in their lifetime. But when you make people desperate, that's definitely a factor. I mean, the same administration using BLM and Antifa and defunding the police and other rabble-rousing tactics, they encouraged crime. Let's be honest. They encouraged crime. They encouraged destruction of property and bodily harm against fellow humans. They encouraged it. And they bailed out criminals using our money to do it. They activated not only the confused and the ignorant and the disenfranchised, but they activated another segment of society, a segment some would call the dregs of society. So the puppet administration really is to blame for the rise in crime. They openly encouraged the chaos because they're working for the cabal. They glorified criminals. They did. Look at the whole Floyd thing. And they insulted a traditionally conservative segment of society by doing so. When the quote-unquote government of the day all but beatifies 
a violent criminal. What sort of message do you think it sends to the general public? A dumbed down general public, glued to the television screen, eagerly eating up whatever the big spoon feeds it. A general public whose intellect has atrophied to such an extent it can't even figure out that allowing males to compete in women's sports is the exact opposite of equality. But it's actually an open attack on the feminine by the patriarchy. A straight up FU to women, isn't it? It's like they're saying, you want equality? We'll raise you equality. We'll raise your equality with two testicles, because now we can be women too. The globalist Luciferians, they want us poor, angry, easily led, and easily bled, and thus far, they have done a very good job, and they've won a few major battles, but this year, this year is a game changer, and it will backfire for them, and it will be horrible for them, and it will be ugly for them, and I, for one, can't wait to see it. Now, you can debate with me that there are many other reasons why the crime rate is up. And I can debate with you for hours on that. But right now, this spike that we're seeing, it is directly due to the actions of the attempted New World Order globalist Luciferian takeover. All right, let's take another question. And this is from Corby in PV, which I think is Puerto Vallarta, who asks, Adi, what do you make of the people who insist that the Bible has secret codes in it? My friend says this, you're supposed to look at the lines, the paragraph numbers, and all that stuff, and a secret code appears. In your opinion, is there any truth in that? Did God write secret codes into the Bible? I think that one deserves uh, a sip of my drinky poo. Hold on. Mm. All right, <clears throat> Colby, I'll just go ahead and say what I'm going to say, as I always do, because, you know, it's always going to be misinterpreted by someone, isn't it? And that's none of my business. So the Bible is a collection of uh, papers, books, essays, edited, altered over time from different sources with many different versions and the original content was not written in English plus the original content was not designed to be incorporated into a Bible format and therefore had no officially numbered paragraphs. So my question to those people would be, duh, which version, which translation and why a code, if it is indeed the word of God, um, which clearly I don't believe it is, why would God code it? Why not instruct the masses in plain Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew or Latin or whatever? In today's light versus dark arena, and that really is where we are, people are so attached to their forms in ways not useful and not healthy. The globalists, the bad guys, they're serious about attacking religion. They are serious about separating us from the knowledge of our true nature. 
So the backlash from those who follow a particular religion is strong, and I can't fault them for that. I believe religion is a halfway house to universal union, a halfway house we should have moved out of long ago, but it's none of my business how people worship, and I would rather they see themselves as part of a holy union than not. That said, there's a trend. Um, people are jumping through hoops to prove the validity of their religions, because I guess no one wants to be told they've followed something and invested something for years, but it's just a cleverly manipulated half-truth. So we have people falling over themselves to find historical reference for the fables and the parables, working ever so hard to keep the specialness of their chosen prophet and whatever he or she was supposed to have said and done. Uh, in my opinion, humbly offered as always, we should have moved away from the need to find something special and magical, something supernatural to all this a long while ago. The specialness people cling to is what weakens the storyline. See, the divine doesn't have specialness. The divine does not have chosen people. All are equal in its eyes. The divine does not glorify some and smite others. Because, you see, if you really think about it, the divine did not make the world. We did. The cosmic divine source made us and we made the physical worlds. In order for mankind to flourish, to sort out the true from the woo from the pontifical poo, a fundamental shift in consciousness is needed. We need to have direct knowing of our magnificent cosmic nature without having to experience the divine through some organization's preferred prophet or thorny narrow path. And for that to happen, we need to understand that everything physical is an illusion, a dream, that only our cosmic souls are real. Everything else is temporal, fleeting. It's a temporary experience. It's happening. I mean, clearly, as here I am with my drinky poo talking to you. But am I really here or somewhere else? And am I me? or just a personality I chose for the vessel in which I experienced this incarnation. Source is real. Everything comes from source. There is no opposite to source. Everything outside source, though, is an idea that manifestations of source are having. We don't exist. And yet here we are. <laughs> what is that all about? Well, if we spend time pondering these consciousness-expanding questions, we would remember what we truly are, and our physical realms would become utopian playgrounds instead of the dystopian muck pools we have today. If we take away the silly supernatural stories and focus on the process and expansion of creation, we will see there is 
plenty of magic and awe and wonder to be had without making silly stuff up. We are unbelievably powerful beings if we would allow ourselves to see it. If we would acknowledge that and take our glorious natures for granted, see them as mundane, yes, that would be wonderful if we said, yep, I'm a god in a bod. How cool is that? That's my norm. I can move mountains. I can manifest cheesecake out of thin air. How cool. If we took that for granted, we wouldn't need to cling to these confusing half-truth mishmash stories because the magic and the mundane would be one and the same. No guru, no prophet, no central committee, no mission statement, not a whole bunch of stuff to prove. Just a bunch of gods and bods bringing the glory of God to the physical realms. We don't need secret codes. Because, darling, you see, we are the codes. Hmm. You know, my darlings, when I talk like this, it upsets a great many people. I know it does because they write to me. And they tell me, Ani... Honey, you are trying to take my faith away from me. Don't do that, because it brings me great comfort. I can escape this horrible world when I pray faithfully, even if it's just for a few minutes. You know, I have an issue with that. Um, and perhaps I'm not articulate enough, so I guess I'll work on that. But I have no intention of taking your faith away from you. But, but hear me on this. You say the world is horrible and faith is an escape, a temporary comfort for you. You're really selling yourself short. Wouldn't you rather live in a world from which no escape is necessary? Wouldn't you rather be in total alignment with source creator I am and walk in its all-encompassing power and create a world that reflects its glory? That's why we were created. Source belched us into the unknown to see if we could create worlds worthy of its glory, of our glory. We weren't created to get locked into identification with form, fear and general effery. So codes, no codes, jumping through hoops to prove this was true. Just let it go. Let the stories go and just connect with what you really are. Pure cosmic energy, cosmic space adventurer. Hmm. All right, let's have another little, well, let's have another little drink. That's always a good idea. Cheers, my darlings. I'm doing this for you. Mm. Oh, lovely. All right. Let's take just one more question because we're halfway through the show, right? Let's take one more question before we move on to our other segments. And this is from Colleen from Tenet, New Jersey, who asks, Dear Ani, is Queen Elizabeth really dead? She has left Buckingham Palace, and we all know the once Prince Andrew ruined the royal reputation. But I find it hard to believe she is dead and that we are seeing a double. My friends tell me that there are many doubles, and I find that hard to believe. How do we get away with that? Hmm. 
Colleen, my darling, yes, it is a very strange world we live in. Is the Queen dead? I can't prove it to you, but in my opinion, in my knowing, yes, the real Elizabeth, the real reptilian top-ranking leader of uh, one of the top Illuminati groups, is dead. And it is a double, and there are many doubles out there. I can't provide you with hard proof. So I'll just say that when the truth about this is published, not just released, but published, and that won't happen until we arrest, try, and sentence most of the corrupt media minions, when the truth is eventually published, it will read like a science fiction novel, because the truth really is stranger than fiction. So get ready for millions of collapsed psyches coming to a town near you. And I appreciate uh, the question, because it's good to bring this awareness to the world. You know, before coming to America to become a committed patriot, um, I spent the first 30 years of my life in the UK. You know, and you can take the girl out of London, darling, but you can't take the London out of the girl. I know all too well the high esteem in which the public hold royalty, how they coo and moo over all things royal. Well, if they could but see the darkness and pure evil of the establishment, and they will because it has begun, if they could see it, if they would allow themselves to strip away the veneer of pomp and circumstance, Buckingham Palace would be turned into a museum faster than the Biden crime cartel launders money in the Ukraine. Thanks for the question, Colleen. Hang in there. Exciting times ahead. And that's the end of Quack for this show. I look forward to sorting out through, um, you know, the next batch of emails and postcards. Send them on. The next show is April the 13th. And if you are new to Metaphysical Martini, we broadcast live every other Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, or is it 4 p.m.? My apologies, 4 p.m. Pacific time via Cosmic Reality Radio, and the recording is available shortly after on multiple platforms, such as podcast.co, a couple of days after, you know, the original recording. And, of course, all of the shows produced by Cosmic Reality Radio are available 24-7 on the archives page at cosmicrealityradio.com, generously hosted by Meta, um, Mystical Wares, Mount Vernon, Washington. And if you want to buy any metaphysical items, including the largest Shungite collection you will ever see anywhere in the world, outside of Shungit in Russia, that's where you want to go. Mystical Wares, Mount Vernon, Washington. Amazing selection, and you can do, do the whole thing online, of course. <clears throat> All right, and now it is time for... A little pat of poetry. <laughs> yes, alcohol and a kazoo. It's not really a winning company. Really not a really winning, um, yes, and that too. Folks, I am not drunk, I assure you. I'm just a little tiddly from my cocktail. A little pat of poetry. After a hard day shamaning, I like nothing better than going home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo, and writing really bad but occasionally brilliant non-peer-reviewed poetry. Why read Shakespeare and indulge in literary prowess when you could have a shaman arnie and a whole lot less? So today's presentation is titled 
The predictions of Nostra Arnidamus, quatrains one to four. Quatrain number one. The mouth of Sauron will be broken. The truth will be known from Harare to Hoboken. Connecting the dots will reveal a picture so horrible, the dark matrix will be rendered non-repairable. Quatrain number two. The people shall see all realities synced, yet some, locked in fear, will remain unconvinced. The ones who ruled by corrupting the mind will be shown their execution orders, dated and signed. Huzzah, huzzah. Quatrain number three. If one is offended by personal sovereignty, to Lucifer one has sworn their fealty. Source-created souls pure and indestructible Beware of those who seek to make the soul's body hackable. Quatrain number four. Attached to form, frozen in fear, a tiny human on a tiny sphere. True nature forgotten, the mind misshapen. It thinks itself a slave, but it is mistaken. I think I might be channeling one aspect of Nostradamus. <clears throat> I don't usually write these little quatrains. I write other silly poetry. But the other day I was just having a pot of PG tips, my favorite beverage, and it just came to me. So I think there's going to be several more quatrains. So you have been warned. And as a payoff for listening to those and to cheer us up, I want to share with you, I don't know if I've done this before, it's quite possible, but it's my version of a popular British ditty entitled The Grand Old Duke of York. You know how he used to go with the Grand Old Duke of York? He had 10,000 men, he marched them up to the top of the hill, and he marched them down again. So this is my own version, and this is a tribute to Andrew, the once and never to be again Prince of the Realm, and Duke of York and generally acknowledged self-entitled dickhead. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Here we go. One, two, three. The grand old Duke of York had trouble with his cook. They marched him out of the palace at dawn and took away his pawn. And now that the game is up, do you think they'll lock him up? Or will he simply disappear in a royal cover-up? And will the royal bank use privilege and rank to distract us from the royal baguette and hope we all forget? And now that his game is up, ooh, do you think they'll lock him up? Oh, no. Or will he simply disappear in a royal cover-up? Well, I don't know what's going to happen to Randy Andy, but uh, I don't think he'll get locked up. He'll probably have to disappear somewhere. All right. Well, congratulations, darlings, for sitting through all that. Enough frivolity. Let's have a little sip of this drinky poo. Mm, lovely. And now let's move from silly poetry to Plato chips. And that's the segment where we discuss and quote a philosopher of note. 
And today's effectual intellectual is Hannah Arendt. And she lived in 1906 to 1975, which means she's dead now. Congratulations. Okay, who is this lady and why do we care? Well, I care because I enjoyed her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Um, and I have to say, I just want to say this, when I feature someone, it's not because I agree with everything that they say. There's a lot about Hannah Arendt that doesn't resonate with me. Um, but these are movers and shakers in the intellectual and philosophical movements, and they definitely have something to offer. And anybody who makes me a little bit uncomfortable teaches me something. <clears throat> I first heard about this girl back in uni when we read The Origins of Totalitarianism, um, which really is about the rise of anti-Semitism in Central and Western Europe in the 1800s. And this book continues with an examination of European colonial imperialism from 1884 to the outbreak of World War I. And in this book, Arendt explores the institutions and the operations of totalitarian movements focusing on the two forms of totalitarian government in our time, the main ones um, prior to this one, Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia, which she recognizes as two sides of the same coin, not opposing philosophies of right and left. And from this vantage point, she discusses the evolution of classes into masses, the role of propaganda in dealing with the non-totalitarian world um, and the use of terror and the nature of isolation and loneliness as preconditions for total domination. So as you can see, if you apply that to today's world, you might want to go and pick up a copy of the origins of totalitarianism. So Hannah Arendt, was she a philosopher? I think she was a philosopher, but really she was a humanist thinker. Um, she was bold and she was provocative. Uh, she warned us against the political dangers of the philosophy. Um, how can I put it? Uh, she really, I'm going to try and put this in, 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 in language that, uh, that makes sense. Um, she she fiercely defended the importance of the public sphere, but she was a very private person too, and she defended the importance of privacy and solitude as prerequisites for a life in public. She pissed off liberals and conservatives and everybody in between um, from all political persuasions, really. And that's that's a good sign. That's a sign of someone who's going to shake things up enough for change to happen on the planet. So she was born in 1906 in Hanover in Germany. Her father died when she was seven years old, which is very sad. And she was raised by her mother, Martha Cohen Arendt. And she went to the University of Marburg, and she studied philosophy with Martin Hedegaard, interesting philosopher, I do believe also um, had some Nazi affiliations. Uh, but she actually had a youthful affair with him, a, a brief little flingette. Um, and then, you know, she went and she completed her doctoral dissertation on love and St. Augustine at the Universal University of Heidelberg. And at that time, she was under the supervision of Karl Jaspers. She was married briefly to Gunther Stern, um, 
who published under the name of Gunther Anders, but I don't think that was of much consequence. They divorced in 1937. I'm going to fast forward to 1933, where Arendt was working for the German Federation of Zionists, a very misunderstood um, and provocative word, Zionist. The movement at that time was led by Kurt Blumenfeld, um, and it resulted in the political police arresting her, which is never good. So she fled to Paris, where she completed a biography of um, Rahel Varnagen, who's a very well-known 18th century German-Jewish sociolite. Uh, sociolite. Um, that biography, however, remained unpublished until 1958. Uh, for those who don't know uh, much about um, Vonnegut, uh, a German writer, and more than that, uh, a host of some of the most prominent salons in Europe in the late 18th and 19th centuries. So there we are. Um, I think that book is called Life of a Jewess. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Uh, where are we now? We're in Nazi-occupied France, where Arendt is. And she's working for the organization Youth Aliyah, which rescues Jewish youth. And there she met the man who would become her second husband, one Heinrich Blucher. And Arendt was imprisoned in a detention camp in the southwest of France. Because, uh, you know, that's what happens when you're outspoken politically. But she escaped. And she and Blucher fled Nazi Europe, came to New York, 1941. And through the 40s, Arendt wrote multiple essays on anti-Semitism, on the refugees, um, for the need to form a Jewish army. Um, she wrote for multiple different um, journals. Um, and then she taught at Bard College. Now, in the 1950s, we see the publication of her major works, The Origins of Totalitarianism, um, which was, as we discussed, her insightful study of the intellectual and historical foundations of the Nazi and Stalinist regimes. Uh, she also wrote The Human Condition, uh, the account, her account of the retreat of public life in the modern age. She also wrote, wrote On Revolution, which was her third major book published in 63. And there she explored the American tradition of constitutional democracy and political freedom. If we talk to the people at the Hannah Arendt Center, they would say that she wrote intellectual history, not as a historian, but as a thinker. Building upon events and exemplary actions to reach original insights about the modern predisposition to totalitarianism, threats to human freedom posed by both scientific abstraction and bourgeois morality. They will also tell you that she was fiercely independent, which means she was stubborn as heck. Um, she did not accept tenure as a teaching job. Most academics would jump through hoops to get tenured, but she did not. However, however, she was the first woman to be named a full professor at Princeton. And she also taught at the University of Chicago, University of California, Berkeley, at the Wesleyan University, and at the New School. And for those who don't know, the New School is a private research university in New York City, 
it was founded in 1919. Um, I think at that time it was called the New School for Social Research. And it had an original mission dedicated to the academic freedom and intellectual inquiry. Um, it was a sort of a home for progressive thinkers. So she lived life as a public intellectual and was a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books, um, various different journals, oh, the New Yorker as well. And she published three major anthologies in her lifetime, Between Past and Future, Men in Dark Times, and Crisis and the Republic. Um, and, you know, she died in 1975. She's buried alongside uh, Blucher in the Bard College Cemetery. Uh, very interesting, very interesting woman. If you're really interested in what's going on today, you might want to go back and read some of her works. One of the things I remembered about her was that she was very interested in the trial of uh, Adolf Eichmann. Um, 1961. She was given the chance to cover the trial of Adolf Eichmann, 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 Adolf Eichmann, and she did. Um, and, you know, I think we all know who Eichmann was. He was responsible for the detention and transportation of Jews to the concentration camps. And she wanted to do this so much, not just because she was Jewish, but she thought it's going to be her last opportunity to see a Nazi official in the flesh. And she wrote essays on the trial that appeared in The New Yorker. Um, and those essays, I believe, became the book Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, which is another book I think you should all read. It's widely, widely misinterpreted. Her writings about Eichmann, um, I think it's fair to say it unleashed a storm of controversy because in this, in the banality of evil, she argues, this is a Jewish woman, a Jewish philosopher, she argues that Eichmann was not a monster. Now remember, this is the guy who arranged for the transportation of the Jews en masse. And you know, I would dispute the number, but it's still in the many, millions. Um, all of his Jews and all of his undesirables en masse going to concentration camps and to be eliminated. And she's saying that he was not a monster. I'm going to quote here. She was struck both by the immensity of Eichmann's crimes and the ordinariness of the man. It is one thing to kill out of malice. But how could a man responsible for transporting millions of Jews to their deaths insist he was a Zionist and seek understanding from his Jewish interrogators in Israel? Arendt saw that Eichmann became a mass murderer, not simply from hatred. He never murdered anyone and initially resisted the physical killing of Jews. But from his fervent dedication to the Nazi movement, so she looked at um, Eichmann, she said he was a joiner, and in his own words, Eichmann feared to live in a leaderless and difficult individual life in which he would receive no directives from anyone. A bourgeois salesman down on his luck, 
Eichmann found in the Nazi movement a sense of importance. That desire to prove himself meaningful, combined with his use of cliches and bureaucratic role morality, rendered him unable to think clearly about what he was doing. This is what Arendt meant by her famous and famously misunderstood dictum of the fearsome word and thought defying banality of evil. Mm. Arendt neither defends Eichmann nor denies he is evil. She recognizes he was an anti-Semite, anti and she assists, absolutely insists that he be hung for his evil deeds. But she also sees that his overriding motivations were neither monstrous nor sadistic. Eichmann participated in the greatest act of evil in world history because of his inability to think critically about his fidelity to a Nazi ideology that he clung to as a source of significance in a lonely and alienating world. Such thoughtless ideological zealotry is, Arendt, um, Arendt concludes, the face of evil in the modern world. The world is full, and this is not quoting, this is me, the world is full of such useful idiots, isn't it, to help the machinery of evil move along. So we would say um, Arendt never developed a coherent theory of politics, but sought instead to think, to understand the world as it is. Hmm. As bad as things were, she took solace from the fact that no government could, could extinguish human freedom. And yet she saw clearly that modern society fears the disorderly life of democratic freedoms and embraces the comfortable security of administrative bureaucracy. In the face of such threats to public freedom, Arendt calls us to act in ways that surprise and to inaugurate new paths in history. Arendt's lasting gift is the vital power of her defense of freedom in an increasingly unfree age. So there we are, my darlings, Hannah Arendt. Um, I think we need to start teaching philosophy in schools again. And I think we need to start teaching it at 12, 13, 14, perhaps, and not just leave it for university um, and for later on. Um, because when I read these things, what am I now? I'm 62 years old. And so I'm sort of 17, 18 years old, and I'm about to embark on higher education. I already had the luxury of a, of a rather reputable boarding school education. And a great many of these concepts were already known to me before I went to university. Um, and I was taught very much back in the day to think for myself. Now, I'm not going to say there wasn't a certain amount of indoctrination in my British boarding school about being a good British citizen. And I'm sure that um, a fair amount of our history that was taught to us was rather biased. But when I compare my education to today's education, 
we were encouraged to be critical thinkers. We were encouraged to be free, free thinkers. Um, and that, not so much today. You know, the parameters for free thought, they're so narrow. And now we have teachers that want children to march up and down holding signs that say Black Lives Matter and don't have white babies and just and millions of initials keep getting added to this LGBTQT. Da, 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 you know, I'm not saying we're all equal in the eyes of God. But, you know, I've been a gay woman my entire life, as far as I know, because I think that's what it is, because my partner is female. But never once have I needed my own initials. Never once have I needed my own flag. I really like the American flag. It works really well for me. We have to, on the other side of this, have a fundamental change in thinking, because people don't understand what equality is. We were encouraged to figure that out for ourselves and to have a moral compass through an understanding of the creation of the cosmos. Kids here are not doing that. They're being told what to think. And that's why we are in the mess that we're in today. So there we are. I have said it all. And unfortunately, I don't have time once again for tarot or go-go, and I do apologize for that. But, you know, how does this happen? How does the time just, wow, it's gone. We're almost at the end of the show. And I have to say, I hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it, because I had a blast. I always do. It is my pleasure to join with like-minded peeps every other Wednesday and share a cornucopia of delights with you. So, okay, let me finish this a little bit too strong drink. Hold on. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. And now it is officially the end of the show. Darlings, today's real-life cocktail was, and it was ever so yummy, a classic brandy highball. And here's how you make it. You get yourself a goodly slug of brandy. I'm using uh, a Spanish brandy today, Lepanto Brandy Solera Gran Reserva. Spanish brandies are quite light, reasonably priced, and very good for mixing. You need some Angostura bitters. Don't get any others. Just get the Angostura bitters. And you want good ginger ale. I'm using Q ginger ale, not because it's Q, but because it tastes like ginger when most ginger ales don't taste like ginger. You're going to want a twist of lemon peel, a highball glass, and ice. So get your highball glass, fill it with ice. I think cracked ice is best. Pour in the brandy and a couple of drops of the bitters. Top it off with ginger ale. Give it a gentle stir. Then express your lemon peel into the drinky poo and then use it to decorate the glass. And sip slowly. And think how wonderful this will taste when summer is finally here. Now remember, folks, cocktails are great if, if they are an occasional treat. There's a whole rampant alcoholism going on out there because of the lockdown and everything. Moderate your drinking. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Mad Shaman Abadissian. This was a metaphysical martini. 
a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, hold the line, focus on the meaning of the authentic self, and above all, my darlings, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini with Ani Alphadisian, The Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening to Cosmic Reality Radio. We appreciate your support. Please visit our sponsor at mysticalwares.com for a huge selection of metaphysical products, gifts, candles, incense, and one of the largest Shungite collections available. Cosmic Reality Radio is sponsored by Mystical Wares Online Store, where coupon code SAVE10 will get you 10% off your entire order at mysticalwares.com. <laughs>